Let's pray. God, our Father, Lord, we praise you and we honor you for your glory. And we thank you, Lord, that you are indeed God above heaven. Oh, Lord, you are high and lifted up above all things. That you are the great King of kings. Lord, that you rule over the creation you have made with a mighty providence. And that, Lord, you do govern the nations as you see fit. You are indeed in heaven and do what you please. We honor you and we praise you. And we thank you for the good gift of life that you have given to us. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would be glorified today as we look into your word and we see what you have written for us. We pray, God, that you would encourage and strengthen our faith, Lord, that we might continue to serve you faithfully. Father, that you would comfort us with the hope of your soon coming kingdom. And that, Lord, that we would just be exhorted to serve you with our whole life. God, that we would love you with everything that is within us. We ask that you would increase our love for you, God. Oh, Lord, that we would live devout lives of worship unto you. And, Father, we just uh, ask that you would continue to make us like Jesus. Lord, we want to be like Jesus. And so we ask that you would help us to be a people of love and a people of kindness and a people of grace and a people of wisdom. We thank you for all of the good things that you're working in us by your Spirit. We praise you for this privilege. And, Lord, we eagerly long for your word to live in us and dwell in us and to change us. And so, Lord, as we look into your word today, we just thank you for the privilege that we have to freely proclaim it in this place. We honor you and we bless you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. All right. We cooking over there? Okay. All right. Okay, so we are back in our study in 1 Thessalonians. And last week we got, <clears throat> almost got through verse 6 of chapter 1. And um, so I just kind of want to briefly remind you of the context and then we'll take off from there and see how much progress we can make today. Um, you remember that the Thessalonian church was a really young church that Paul had come through and discipled for a very short period of time. Then, of course, he was run out of town by angry Jews and an angry mob. And uh, he left behind this very young church, which he had discipled for only about a short four-week period of time. And then he was really kind of unable to uh, hear from them or communicate with them for a period of several months, at which time he sent Timothy back to Thessal uh, Thessalonica, and he there found a thriving little church. And uh, so this was a very remarkable thing. And uh, it has been recorded for the annals of history in God's word for everyone to see and to read. And um, it is of this little Thessalonian church that Paul is writing the entire first chapter really as a thanksgiving to God, commending them for their great faith and how uh, God had just worked in their hearts just a supernatural salvation and how that was now being lived out in their lives and by the example of their lives. And because of that, Paul said in, in verse 4, he said that he knew that they were God's chosen people. He knew that their election was sure because he could look at their life and he could see the definite marks of a born-again people. And so, if you will, he's going on verses 5 through 10, and he's describing in more complete detail what those marks are and what they look like. And uh, so, in verse 5, he said that they had <clears throat> uh, received the word 
uh, in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And he talked about the power that the gospel came to them and how it just transformed their life. That this power was alive and it was real and it transformed them and changed them into the people of God. And that uh, this was, uh, if you will, the catalyst that had caused them to have this working faith that they had and this laboring love that they were serving God. They were working for God. They were serving God by being a witness and a testimony of his gospel in the entire province of Macedonia and beyond. And that this was a very remarkable thing for this young church. Um, But because they received the word in power and it came with full conviction, they were changed. They were transformed. And Paul said that this was such a powerful work that they had become... Just like Paul and the apostles who were there and had preached the gospel, they, he says in verse 6, became imitators of us and of the Lord. And so in this short period of time, these Thessalonian Christians had believed the gospel that they heard and they obeyed the teaching that Paul gave them. They literally just took what Paul said for God's word and they went out and did what he commanded them to do. And uh, I think this is an extremely remarkable thing that has happened. And, and the more I, I ponder it and the more I think about it and the more I pray over this scripture, the, the more I, I marvel at how remarkable it really is. Um, I'm still striving, if you will, to kind of live after the Thessalonian example, and I've been a Christian for 18 years. And, uh, <clears throat> and yet, within the first year of their faith, they are turning their world upside down. And uh, not only that, they're doing that in the face of much opposition and much affliction. Um, And, of course, we've we've talked about that at length. But that that brings us to verse 6 where Paul said that they had become imitators of of them, the apostles, and of the Lord, and and, uh, that they had done that in the midst of much tribulation. And, of course, they were being persecuted for their faith. And I reminded you as we kind of closed last week that the words of Jesus in John 15, this is recorded at the top of page 13. He said there that if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master, and if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you, and if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And so Jesus was teaching his disciples that persecution was going to come, and that they were going to treat his disciples in the same manner that they treated him. And um, this is, uh, in fact, what has happened to the church ever since there's been a church. Amen? Amen. The world has hated the church just like it hated Christ. And we've talked at some length about why it is that the world hates the church. And it's because of the bad news (laughs) that's a part of the good news. Amen? Are you with me? The bad news is, is that mankind is subject to God's authority to whom mankind has been a rebellion in rebellion, and he has therefore incurred the wrath of God and the judgment of God, which is namely death. And it is uh, because of this message that we tell men that there is a God in heaven who is going to judge them for their actions and their deeds and their own personal evil. And that if they don't repent of that evil and turn to Christ, the only way they can be saved, uh, that they they get so upset. They don't want to hear this very negative news. Amen? In fact, what could be more negative news (laughs) than that the holy God of heaven, the creator of heaven and earth, is angry with you personally and that he is going to personally condemn you? at the last day, if you don't repent and turn and do what he commands. Amen? People who want to do what they want to do and don't want to be accountable to anybody 
which is the natural disposition of all men and women, right? We want to be autonomous. We don't want to be ruled over, right? Uh, when people hear this message, it is very repulsive, and it makes them angry, and it engenders their hostilities. Amen? So, family, you need to think in, in, in terms of what the modern gospel is and what the true biblical gospel is. You can't make the gospel palatable to natural men. It's not possible. It is an absolute offense to them. Okay? And anybody who's going to be saved has to come to be offended by the gospel and understand that they need a savior. And in that, coming to understand, they must humble themselves and surrender in submission to God in order to receive the sacrifice that he has provided for them. Amen? There's no other gospel. There's no other way to believe. The central issue that's at stake in the gospel is is that man has been separated from God because of his sin and that God is angry with wrath because of his nature of holiness. Right? And that there has to be some kind of reconciliation between man and God or man is going to remain under God's judgment. Amen? That's the central issue of the gospel, and that is what the Christian cross is all about. Amen? So, it's when we preach this message that people become offended and people get hostile. Okay? Now, they don't always get hostile, okay? But many times they do. And a lot depends on on, uh, the situation you find yourself in, what kind of culture these people are are involved in, what kind of religious practice they're involved in. But nevertheless, the same rings true for every man and every woman, regardless of race, regardless of class, right? Regardless of of, uh, where they grew up or, or any other thing, they are accountable to God personally because of their sins. And there's only one way for them to be saved from the wrath of God, the wrath that is to come, 1 Thessalonians 1.10. And that is through repentance from their sins and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And once they place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and they repent of their sins, they become the recipients of all of the blessing of God's goodness. And they get adopted into his family as his children, And they receive all of the promise that comes with the blessing of God, including and foremost, eternal life. Amen? Amen. And and so it's not until that faith and repentance that they find themselves in the favor of God. It's not until that repentance that they find themselves in the favor of the love of God. Do you understand? God God loves his creation because he's by nature love. But let me tell you, God doesn't love the rebellion of mankind. And if mankind persists in his rebellion, that love is ultimately going to turn to justice. Because God cannot deny his own character. Amen? So it's important then that we make this clear to people so that they understand very clearly what the gospel is. And when you look at the Thessalonian church and you see the things that they were uh, 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 involved in and how they were serving God and how it engendered the hostility of the nations around them, you know how faithful they were being to to the gospel message. And you know what? It looked just like it looked for Paul and Silas and Timothy as they went from city to city and province to province. uh, Like I have pointed out several times, it was only a matter of time until they got run out of town. They really didn't find themselves welcome, not anywhere. You know, they were in Ephesus for some year and a half, and then, you, you know, the riots broke out and uh, the whole thing, and, and eventually it even happened there, where there was a very strong, healthy, large, sound, vibrant church. <laughs> Nevertheless, uh, there came a day when <clears throat> Paul wasn't welcome there. And, and the Christians engendered hostility there as well. And uh, so this is what we see of this little thriving church. And this is where we left off last week. <clears throat> I was telling you that. People have to understand the bad news of the gospel before there's any reason to understand the good news. 
They have to understand that they have been, have been separated from God by sin and that that has incurred God's wrath, which is the uh, uh, eternal death of God's judgment. And that the only way to be saved from that wrath is through repentance and faith in Christ. And so that's the good news. The good news is man can be saved by trusting in Christ and believing in what Christ has done and repenting of their sins in order to follow him and do what is right. And that when mankind is saved, then God delivers him from death. Amen? Amen. And that's the good news. But family, that good news doesn't have any meaning if you don't understand wrath and judgment and you don't understand the sin problem. That's the essential matter in the gospel. That's why these preachers who, who don't even preach about sin or repentance or the cross or the blood of the atonement and they remove all of these negative aspects of the gospel message are preaching no gospel at all. They have removed the power from the gospel. They have removed the central element from the gospel. Amen? Not only do they wrongly describe what the gospel is, but they wrongly tell men how to receive it. So that they they give them a false message about how to receive it. This is why we have churches full of people who think that they can call themselves Christians and go on living in their sin. You know, the guy's saying in one, in one breath he's a Christian, and in the next breath he's telling you he's, he's living with his girlfriend. You know? <laughs> he's living in open uh, fornication and immorality, which is what engendered the wrath of God in the first place. Which means he hasn't what? Repented. He's living in an open pattern of sin. Amen? This is what we call hypocrisy. This is what we call a mere professor and not a true believer. Amen? And so uh, <clears throat> this false gospel doesn't save. Okay? Okay, well, so then. Um, consider that without the death of the Son of God, there is no proof of the resurrection. Here we are in the middle of page 13. There is no proof of the resurrection either. You see, <clears throat> what happened was Jesus actually accomplished the work of God at the cross. And he proved positive that that work was accomplished by his resurrection from the dead. So that when Jesus was, uh, was resurrected and he was once dead but now then was alive, he proved positive that he conquered death. You see, the resurrection is the crowning achievement of the gospel. It, 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 it finishes the gospel off so that we have solid proof that in fact what Jesus said he was accomplishing through his death, he in fact did. Are you with me? And so it's, it's important then that we understand the fullness of this whole gospel because what, of what Christ actually did himself. He actually proved positive that he conquered death and that he offers life. So when he says that he offers us eternal life, we have proof of that seeing that he now has the keys to death and to hell. How do we know that? Because he was resurrected from the dead. A fact at which he prophesied before he was even crucified. Amen? And so we see in this that we do have a sure hope of eternal life. And uh, uh, this is what Jesus says in John 5.24. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. And so you see that um, uh, Christ, when he promises us eternal life, is not making an empty promise now, is he? He's making a promise for which there are 500 eyewitnesses to his resurrection. More than 500. Amen? And so this isn't just an empty promise. Our faith is founded on reputable historical facts. Amen? And the gospel is something, family, listen, that Jesus already did. It's a proclamation of something that Christ did himself. And this is why the gospel is of faith and not of works. 
Because you cannot, you cannot earn favor with God. You cannot do enough good things to reconcile you to God because you can't pay the penalty for your sins. That was accomplished by Christ once for all. You understand? The gospel is something that Jesus did of which we tell others about. It's a message of what Jesus did for us. Amen. Are you with me? It's an objective reality. It's something that stands of itself already accomplished. And all we're doing is looking to that person, Jesus, and that work he accomplished and trusting in and believing that that is our righteousness before God. And upon that believing, upon the genuine, true believing, right, we, we do what? We repent of our sins and we begin to follow him and do what is right. And that's the proof to us, right, that we're a true believer. We see now the full conviction of the Holy Spirit of God has powerfully transformed our life. Amen? Okay, so then. And so it is these Thessalonians showed another supernatural evidence of their election. That is, they were faithfully imitating their teachers, even receiving the message of the gospel in midst of much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. You know, these Thessalonians, they were a people of joy. They were a people who knew they had been set free. Amen? And, and, and they were so happy about it, family. They went out and stirred up their entire world. They couldn't keep quiet about it. They went out and told everybody in every place, right, what had happened to them. They had been changed. They had been touched by Christ. They had been transformed by the power of, of the gospel and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this brought to them this fruit of the Spirit we call joy. They had a deep inner satisfaction. How powerful was that joy? Let me tell you. You beat them up, and they're, they're singing in the jail in the middle of the night. They're hanging in the stocks with blood running off their back. Right? And they're singing for the joy of their salvation. And even though men beat Christians, <laughs> seeking to keep them quiet, right? They are but filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Amen? And if you have that joy, you know it. You know that joy is worth more to you than life itself. Amen? Because the hope that you have in Christ transcends this life. Amen? Praise God. As Calvin points out, commenting on this verse, the gospel cannot be properly or sincerely received unless it be with a joyful heart. Nothing, however, is more at variance with our natural disposition than to rejoice in afflictions. Even though the Thessalonians were persecuted for their faith in a very hostile climate, they not only held their faith privately, but practiced it publicly, and this they did with great joy. Amen? Okay, that brings us to verse 7 and 8. And there Paul says, So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. By the way, it's Achaia. <laughs> if you were wondering if it was Achaia. It's not Achaia, it's Achaia. Okay? Look in the book. <laughs> look, in the, uh, look in the Greek pronunciation book. And uh, you'll see that that's why I keep calling it Achaia. <laughs> Thankfully, I haven't been persecuted about that, but I thought I'd, I'd, I'd bring it up. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. Now think about what Paul is saying about these young Christians. He says that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. So this little four-week-old church is now an example church <laughs> to all the believers in their region. That is an amazing thing, is it not? I mean, can you imagine having that kind of commendation from the Lord for your church? That you were an example to all the believers in your region? I don't know about you, but I long to have that kind of commendation from God. Amen? 
I mean, I mean, when I show up before the Lord Jesus Christ, I want him to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Amen. I mean, he's the one I live for. He, you know, I, I turned from my idols. Right. I, I turned from serving the vain and lifeless things of this world to serve him. Amen. And so when I get done, I want him to say, you did good, son. Amen. Are you with me? I want the commendation of the Lord. And I see this commendation that God gives to this little church, and I think, this is remarkable. This is remarkable. You'd think after 18 years I'd get it figured out. You with me? (laughs) It's almost like I want to slap myself and say, hey, wake up, man. What is it that causes me to slumber? You with me? I'm sharing my private thoughts with you as I ponder these verses. The words, so that. Point us back to verse 6. They became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And by this, they became an example to all the believers. You see, it was uh, the, the imitation of the apostles and of the Lord that they did in the midst of affliction and with joy that they were imitating the apostles. Because this is exactly what the apostles were doing. The apostles were going about preaching the gospel from city to city to city with much affliction and with great joy. They had just not long before come from Philippi, right? And in the Philippian jail, that's where Paul and Silas had been beaten, thrown in the stocks, right? And there they were singing the praises of God all night long. You remember what happened as a result of that? An earthquake shook the place, right? And all the chains fell off. And all the prisoners ran free, right? And the Philippian jailer there, knowing he's going to get executed for this, because all the prisoners ran off, and it was his responsibility to keep them, right? He was going to fall on his sword. And he, and he, he, says, he says, hey, you, Paul and Silas, you guys who are singing all night after we beat you half to death. He says, what must I do to be saved? You remember that? Acts 16.31. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. Amen? And and it it was just after that tremendous affliction that they had received there in Philippi that they find themselves in Thessalonica, right? Well, these Thessalonian believers, they did exactly what they saw the apostles doing. They became imitators. Doing what? Doing whatever the apostles did. They went out and began to preach the gospel. They went out and sounded forth the gospel in all of Macedonia, in in Achaia. And he says here, in every place they did this. And Paul says, because you did that, because you did what we did, he said, you became an example to all the believers. You see that? Now, here is where I find myself measured. Okay? Am I an imitator of the apostles and of the Lord so that my faith, when it's practiced and lived out, looks like that faith at that example church? Are you with me? Here we see God commending this church as an example to all the believers. That's telling me, brother, this is where your practice needs to be. This is what your life needs to look like. This is the example to model. What example? The model of the Lord Jesus, whom the apostles modeled, and who the Thessalonian church modeled after them. You with me? It's awful quiet in here. It is no small thing that Paul says of this church that they were a pattern for all believers. The Greek word actually means a pattern. This commendation Paul does not give to any other church. You hear that? This commendation... Paul does not get any other church. And he wrote a lot to a lot of churches. Note then the high quality of the Thessalonians' faith that is regarded as an example. And the specific characteristics of their faith are given as to why they are an example. It is the fact that they became imitators of both the Lord and the apostles and received the word in much tribulation with joy. And this imitating, mimetes in the Greek, from which we get our English word mimic, resulted in the word of the Lord 
has sounded forth, verse 8, from them in all of Greece. These specific qualities of their faith are pointed out. They were imitators of the Lord and of the apostles. They had received the word with joy, even in the, wor- in the midst of much tribulation and opposition, and they were very evangelical, that is, gospel-centered, sounding forth the gospel in every part of their world. So this is the thing that Paul is saying they're an example for. They were imitators of the apostles and of the Lord, receiving the word in much affliction with great joy and then sounding it forth. Okay? Learn here that the way these Thessalonians live their Christian life is an example to all believers that we must seek to imitate. Amen? I don't know about you, but when I read about an example in there, and I'm trying to learn from the Word of God what it's saying to me, it's telling me this is something that you pattern your life after. Amen? When the Scripture points to this activity as a model church, we ought to seek to pattern our church after it. Now, can you see how timely these words are for our church? Amen? And wouldn't you like the Lord's commendation for our little fellowship? That the gospel had sounded forth from us in every place. So much so that, that we didn't have to tell anybody about it, right? But they were busy telling others about how we had done it. Amen? God help us. He says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth so that we have no need to say anything. The way that Paul describes their evangelical efforts is quite remarkable. He says that it has sounded forth from you not only in the entire provinces of Macedonia and Achaia, but in but even beyond those places. Now this is no small feat. Paul is saying that the Thessalonians had received the word with so much joy that they told the world about it and did it with such force that Paul did not need to publish it at all because they had done it on their own. The terms in every place is an obvious hyperbole, but nevertheless, the idea that they had given testimony of their faith in Christ to much of the Greco-Roman world, and the nature of this testimony is reported in verse 9, how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. You see, this is what they were telling everybody. They were saying, these, these apostles came through who were eyewitnesses of the gospel. They were eyewitnesses of the death and resurrection of Jesus. They preached the gospel to us. We repented of our sins and believed in the Lord and we were transformed. We were changed. Jesus set us free and he can set you free. They went out and they told everybody about it. They were joyful about what God had accomplished for them and in them. Amen. They received the word with full conviction. And so they went out and they reported it. The Thessalonians were not ashamed of the gospel or of their faith in Christ, even telling the hostility-provoking message of repentance from the pluralistic worship of pagan idolatry to engendering themselves in the service of the true God. You understand what they're doing? These are people who have turned their backs on on Greek religion, on Greco-Roman religion, okay, which is a polytheistic kind of religion whereby people worship many gods. And in these places, they, they, there's all these little religious cults and sects, hundreds of religious cults and sects. And each of these religious cults and sects were, were worshiping these um, idols that they had made in the image of these gods to whom they were worshiping. Okay, And in the practice of worshiping these idols and these gods, they were involved in all manner of drunkenness and orgies and sexual immorality of all sorts and all kinds of lewd behavior that would come forth from these things. And um, uh, it it was a very wicked thing. But nevertheless, it was a part of the Greco-Roman world. That's how people lived their lives. Those were the things that they were involving themselves in. 
And this was the kind of lifestyle that these Thessalonians were saved out of. So then when they heard the gospel and they went out and preached this thing, they're going out to these very people and they're telling them that the the religion that these people are practicing is engendering the wrath of the holy God who's going to judge them for what they're doing. Okay? Now that was an amazing thing that they were doing. Okay? They were casting down the false arguments of these religious sects. You know, S-E-C-T-S. These sections of these cults, okay? These, these, these false religious systems who had these false religious beliefs. They were going to them with the message of the true and living God. And they were telling these people that they needed to repent of these things because these things had gotten them into big trouble with the true God, okay? And that's what had engendered so much hostility. Let me tell you, these Thessalonians weren't ashamed. Because let me tell you, they were facing some persecution. I mean, you imagine what happens when you show up in the Mormon temple? (laughs) Right? And you start telling them that the God they worship is a false God. Right? And that through their worship, which is an abomination to the true God, that God is going to judge them and condemn them. Let me tell you, it won't be long before they're bouncing you out on your rear end. Right? You with me? That's what was happening to these Thessalonians. That's what they were facing. And uh, um, many times these religious cults uh, didn't possess a whole lot of virtue. So you understand the nature of the persecution many times, I'm sure, was severe. Paul calls it much tribulation, right? And uh, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he's going to talk about that again. He's going to talk about how it's just for God to return indignation on their heads for what they had done to these Christians. So he says that in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, which does not necessarily mean that all these places were evangelized, but at a very minimum, they had given testimony of their own personal faith in Christ. And so, you know, he, he uses this as a hyperbole. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place. Now, certainly he doesn't mean in Vietnam, right? Or in uh, Iceland, (laughs) right? But what he means is, effectively, right, every place that you could practically reach within your small uh, resources that you have, right? And and even the, 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 the fact that they had gone into all Macedonia in such a short period of time, was an amazing thing. It really was an amazing thing. Okay, so then, they certainly were by this evidence seeking to evangelize their world. Paul mentions this again in 2 Thessalonians, and notice here how he describes it. So he mentions this idea again, that they had sounded forth the word in every place. He says in 2 Thessalonians 3.1, Finally, brethren, Pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. You see that? And uh, so this is exactly what happened among them. The word of God was glorified through them and it spread rapidly. You see that? That's an amazing thing. These Thessalonians were so excited about their faith that they had told much of the Greco-Roman world about it. It is because of this activity that they were identified by Paul as a model church. Okay? That brings us to verse 9. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned from God, turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And so he says here, For they themselves, that is the people in the provinces of Macedonia and Achaia and every place, They report about us what kind of reception we had with you. Here Paul points out that he didn't need to tell people in other places that the Thessalonians had been saved, for they had published the news on their own. He describes the fact that others had been so moved by the Thessalonian witness that they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you. The Thessalonians had made a profound impact on the world around them. Now, something I want to remind you of, you remember when we were studying the background and the theme of this letter, 
that I drew a little map on the board and I showed you where Thessalonica was and that it was actually right on the major trade route that came through Greece there. And, and not only that, but there was also a northern road that came and branched off of that and went up into the northern provinces, which was the main artery for trade that went up into the northern provinces of, uh, of Eastern Europe. Okay? And so they are in this little hub location. Not only that, but they were a port city so that you got ships coming in there from Egypt, from Israel, from, from all of North Africa, right? From what they would call Tarshish, which would be all the way over in Western um, uh, Europe. All these ships would come into this harbor. And so they were, they were, they were literally having um, people from, from all these different places in the, in, the, in the Roman world at that time coming into Thessalonica. That's the place that God decided to do this profound work in these idol-worshipping Gentile Thessalonians. Okay, And so it's because of that powerful work of God in their church that the gospel was sounding forth and going in all of these places. Okay, And if you will, they had easy access because of these trade routes to these other places. And so it's just a very interesting thing to consider what was in the mind of God as he was working in the hearts of this church and as he had just visited them with much power and, and, uh, and, and just with a tremendous grace that, uh, that really caused them to, to turn their world upside down. It's just a wonderful story. And he says of them, though, here, how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Now, these are some really profound words. Think about what Paul is saying. Not only had they told others the gospel, but they gave the specific information that they had turned to God from idols, the common religion of the Greco-Roman world, that of pagan idolatry, to serve a living and true God. Here we see what engendered so much opposition. In this message is two very important points. First, that their idols are not God, but rather false gods, in contrast to the true God. And second, that their false idols are dead, in contrast to the true God who is living. You see that? They had turned uh, to God, to the true and living God, from their false and dead idols. That's what Paul is saying. That's why he identifies God as the true and living God. He's a God who is the true God. He's not a God who is the false God. He's not a God where we went and took a hunk of wood out of the forest and beat some gold on it and bowed down to worship it. Right? He's the living and true God, the author of life, the one who sustains all that is, the one who created everything with the spoken word. Amen? He's the true God. And notice... He's the true God, one, singular, monotheism. He's the only God. He's the true God, the true only God, the only true God. Are you with me? And not only that, he's alive. He's not like some dead block of wood. Right? So what do we do? We all get drunk so we can worship him. Right? And fall all over the place and vomit all over everything. Right? Wow, what a wonderful religion. Are you with me? You ought to read about some of this false religion. It was an amazing, amazing, vile and sick thing. But uh, uh, this is what they were doing. These were the gods they worship. They carve a marble statue. They put it in a temple. They hire a bunch of prostitutes. They all get drunk and have this vile, wicked religious ceremony. Okay, And you know what it all ends up with? Death. They die because of it. Okay? (laughs) In contrast to the living God, who is the God who gives life, who's holy and pure and true and righteous and noble and good. And this is the contrast that Paul says. They turned to God from idols. They turned their back on that futile, worthless way of life in idolatry. Okay? I'm telling you, it was a terrible thing, this life of idolatry. 
Now imagine going into a tolerant, pluralistic culture steeped in the worship of hundreds of gods who endorse and practice all manner of immoral behavior as a part of their religion and telling them that what they worship are false and dead lifeless idols and that how they worship is an offense against the true and living God who calls them to turn from their worthless vain religion in order to serve and worship him. Now that's what the Thessalonians were doing. They were going to all these religious cults and they were telling them that they were engendering the wrath of the true God and that they needed to turn their back on their religion in order to be saved from the wrath and anger of God. Furthermore, that for this activity, the true God will judge and condemn them to everlasting punishment because their false worship is an abomination in the sight of the true God who is filled with indignation because of it. Here see what arouses the hostility of Greco-Roman people. Are you with me? You know people get fired up about their religion. Ever notice that? There have been more wars fought over religion in the history of mankind than any other thing. Right? Of course, at the root of that many times is money and a desire for power and other things, right? Nevertheless, people get fired up about their religion. And when you tell them their religion is false, they really get fired up. And then when you tell them that the true God is going to judge them because of their religion, they become incensed. Okay? The thing that we don't often recognize in the pluralism of our day is that people don't necessarily have a goddess Artemis that they're going and worshiping, right? They have this humanistic system of religion that's that's just a big cooking pot of humanistic ideas, which really what they're worshiping is themselves and their own autonomy to do whatever they want, whenever they want, and they don't want anybody telling them otherwise. The chief tenet of their faith is, don't tell me what to do. Amen? And uh, the gospel is a hostile message to that. And it's just as vile. Amen? I mean, we see the same fruits coming from such a culture. Right? All the more as it permeates more and more of our culture. Right? And the moral backbone of our culture is, is, is worn down. Right? The more and more this kind of immoral culture is emerging. Well, consider this. Not only this, but the Christian message also excludes the Jews from whom it originated. Did you hear that? The Christian message excludes the Jews from whom it originated. The sacrificial system of Judaism has now been fulfilled in Christ and the form of worship practiced in Judaism is now an abomination in the sight of God who gave his only son in sacrifice to fulfill all that Judaism represented for some 1,500 years. This message is one that invokes much hostility and rage from devout Jews because being very proud and self-righteous about their own ability to please God through the law, the Christian gospel explains that all their self-righteous efforts are an abomination before God and that the only means for them to be saved from God's wrath is to believe in Jesus, the crucified Jewish rabbi who was murdered at the hands of their own religious leaders. Now, family, (laughs) that's not something Jews want to hear. Jews get fired up about their religion too. Amen? And I suppose everybody ought to get fired up about their religion. I mean, if you're going to believe something, at least you ought to have a little bit of conviction about it. Amen? Amen. So we're not only saying that the gospel is a hostile message to Greeks. Guess what? It's a hostile message to Jews, which was another religious uh, cult that was alive and well in the Greco-Roman world, right? In fact, in Thessalonica, there was a very large and influential synagogue, which is where Paul began preaching his message, 
right? And it was those Jews, actually, who hired the angry mob that ran Paul out of town. You remember that? Well, in this matter, devout Jews sinfully reject their own Messiah who came to save them from their sins and reconcile them to God. See here then what it is that summons such hostility both from Jews and Greeks and also what courage the Thessalonians had in publishing their faith in much of the Greco-Roman world. You see that picture now? You see what a remarkable feat that they are accomplishing in this news, in these few short words that describe them? So I want you to consider a little bit about how this applies to us, okay? I'm going to try to paint another little picture for you here. Further, note that this type of pluralistic, immorally tolerant culture is very much like the culture of modern-day America. Now, do you all know what I mean by pluralistic? You want me to clarify that? (coughs) Pluralism. Let let me just tell you, there's all kinds of pluralism, okay? But the kind of, yeah, yeah, there you go. Oh, oh, all right, okay. So what I'm talking about specifically is religious pluralism, okay? Although our, our whole culture is infected with pluralism at every, at every hand, not just in a religious manner, but also in many other ways, okay? Um, but but uh, what I'm speaking about here is religious pluralism. You've got these religious cults with hundreds of different gods in this culture, okay? And so... In order for these people to live together, there's a sense, there's an aura about the culture where we just accept each and every other one of these religious systems. And, you know, hey, that's your religious system and you go worship that God and that's your religious system and you go worship that God. And and I'm going to worship this God. And, and hey, you know what, I'm going to invent my own God over here. And, you know, in in Athens, Paul found an idol inscribed to to the unknown God. You know, I mean, they they worship so many different gods, you know, they start making them up. You know, there's one out there, I don't even know his name. So I'll make an idol to him. You know, I mean, this is the kind of thing that was going on in this culture. And because of that, people become very accepting of one another. And there's this whole sense of, you know, hey, you don't step on my toes and I won't step on yours. Okay? And so, so that kind of an idea, that kind of a, of a, of a sense, that kind of an aura in the culture uh, doesn't make well for somebody who's intolerant. Okay, they're very tolerant of one another. They're tolerant of one another's lifestyles. They're tolerant of one another's practices. Jeff, go ahead. That pluralism goes even deeper than that. It basically says that there is no true religion, and the only reason that you would believe in a religion is to make you feel better, so that you can pick whatever you want, and if you feel good about that, and you feel good about that, then it's okay. Mm-hmm. And then no the truth. the ultimate source of truth then becomes. Uh, one's own uh, will, one's own desire, right? Or, if you will, whatever is culturally acceptable, right? And so, you know, hey, if enough enough people think it's all right, hey, it must be okay, right? And this is kind of the big melting pot that pluralism is, right? Just, hey, hunk it in there. You got a few taters, a few onions, just hunk them in there. Turnip or two, right? You with me? Just throw anything in that pot, turn it on, stir it up. That's the idea of religious pluralism. It's 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 all okay, right? It's all going to be all right. You know? Yeah, right. Yeah, the, the, the moment you begin to tell me it's not going to be all right, <laughs> okay? The moment you become intolerant of my behavior and you start judging my autonomy, right? Now I'm hostile, right? I don't want anybody telling me what I want to do. It's the same old lie that Satan told Eve in the garden. You know, when you eat of that fruit, you shall what? <clears throat> Become like God. Right? You shall become like God. Well, what a lie that was. Right? Okay, so then. The American moral decline of our day thrusts us deeper and deeper into a kind of pluralistic and pagan idolatry that moves us further and further from our once predominantly Christian culture. As this happens, our culture becomes increasingly hostile to the Christian gospel 
as pluralism is always very tolerant of everything except that which restricts personal autonomy, especially in regard to moral issues. The banner that flies over the false gods of pluralism pronounced the message that personal freedom means that every person can do whatever is right in his own eyes and no one can define right and wrong for us except ourselves or whatever the culture defines as acceptable. When you begin to tell a culture that it is that is steeped in the worship of Hollywood icons, sexual immorality and divorce, drug addiction and drunkenness, murder and violence, and all the hedonistic pursuits of pleasure that engulf our country, that what they worship and how they worship is an offense against the true and living God who calls them to turn from their worthless vain religion in order to serve and worship him, you will indeed invoke much hostility and opposition in what you seek to do. You understand? All right. Here, see what invokes the hostility of American people. Are you with me? Here, see why a Christian must have courage to tell other people the gospel. You understand? You understand what somebody with courage does? He does things for the sake of principle, right? Sacrificing his own safety. Are you with me? And this is why it's so hard for us to tell people the gospel. It's, it repels men. It takes courage to tell people this thing. You're casting down their God. You're knocking over their Dagon. You know what I'm talking about? Right? You're telling them they're in big trouble with the ultimate source of authority and that they've got to change their behavior. You're coming into their private prayer closet. You're invading their home and telling them how they are to live. And not only that, you're saying, if you don't change your ways, the holy God of heaven is going to throw you in the lake of fire. (laughs) Are you with me? That takes courage. It takes courage. And family, what, what we do many times because we lack courage is, we water down the message. We soften the message. And I want to tell you that's the wrong approach. Okay? Now, I'm not suggesting that you shouldn't be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit when you're trying to witness to people and you're trying to love them and care for them and live your life before them as a God-honoring Christian. Okay? But what I am saying is when you tell people the gospel, you need to make the gospel clear. You need to make it understandable. And it's not in, in, its, in its most rudimentary form. It's very simple. Right? There's a sin problem between them and God. And the sin problem is, is, is fixed by what Jesus did. And the way they receive what Jesus did is by turning their back on their sins and trusting in him for righteousness. <laughs> Amen? That's it. That's the essential message of the gospel, and that's what engenders hostility. Okay? Because it invades their private life. Okay? Now, See in the example of these Thessalonians the thing that for which God commended them and said they were an example, a pattern for all believers, how this ought to apply to our daily life, right, in the pluralistic culture that we live in. Are you with me? <clears throat> Something to think about, long and hard. Well, so then has the blood of the martyrs been spilled. Since our Lord and the apostles first led us to this cross-bearing duty of preaching the gospel. These Thessalonians then were also an example to all believers of preaching the gospel in every place, being imitators of both the Lord and the apostles, regardless of the opposition that it engendered. But consider their testimony of being saved from idolatry. They had turned from their idols that are not God, but rather false gods in contrast to the true God. I'm going to stop there because I'm going to go into idolatry um, here, and it's a good transition point. 
But I want you to consider, family, okay, how this applies to us and the thing for which God is commending this church. He's commending this little Thessalonian church because when they got saved, they were filled with such joy that in the midst of much persecution and affliction, they went out and told everybody in their world about it. Are you with me? Paul says, because you did that, you became an example to all the believers. Amen? And so I want to challenge you this morning with this question. How you doing? Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you for the glorious freedom that we have experienced in our Lord Jesus Christ and in his gospel. Lord, the forgiveness of sins is so sweet. Our, our consciences are washed, God. And we have experienced your love. And we are filled with your joy. And we are so grateful. Well, Lord, I pray for each and every one within the hearing of my voice that our joy would well up so that we would open our mouth and speak and tell others the excellencies of you who called us out of darkness. Lord, that we would tell other people how Jesus has set us free and how he can set them free. Lord, that we would publish your gospel in every place. Father, we pray that you would just begin to give us more and more courage. God, that even as our culture is hostile to the Christian gospel, that, Lord, we would not let that stop us from telling others about you. We ask for this courage. We do want to be commended. We do want to serve you, God, and we want you to be pleased with our service to you. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to overcome um, that which holds us back. And, Lord, at times when we, when we are scared and want to be silent, give us boldness, God. Give us boldness to speak the truth and help us to do it with gentleness and with respect, with much love. And God, help our lives to be a testimony of the things we say. We ask all of these things because of Jesus' holy cross. Amen. Amen.